Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's another episode of Scarlet Fever, and we got our first guest of the new year joining us today to talk women's hoops. That's what we're going to lead with, and we'll get that going in just a second. Scotty Spinazzola is going to join us. Grant Hanson and Landon Wirt, remember, folks, this is the Daily Nebraskan podcast. Give uh, them a follow on Twitter at DN Sports and at Daily NEB. Uh, so, Landon's Twitter at L A N D O N W I R T. For me, it's at Hanson15 underscore Hanson, H A N S E N 15 underscore Hanson. We're going to start the episode off as we usually do with the best thing we saw this week. If Scotty wants to hop in, I think uh, I have a good idea of what everybody's is this weekend, especially Landon's. <laughs> uh, so, we'll start there. Yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me. It's a. Uh going to be a fun episode um yeah the best thing that i've seen as a chicago sports fan um and bears die hard um we hired chief executive director of personnel from landon's chiefs um ryan poles and honestly for our general manager position and honestly i'm stoked i cannot wait for a new beginning in chicago it's it's good. So now, so the, here's the other thing I heard on that. So you guys were doing like a bunch of like coaching search stuff initially, and now that's all out the window. I mean, that's what I was hearing. That polls has taken over the coaching search. So, um, yeah, George McCaskey, who's our uh, owner president. Well, not owner, but like related to the owner. Um, and president kind of handled everything with uh, Ted Phillips, our president president of football ops, and uh, and uh, Bill Polian who's been kind mm. of like their mentor of like um, football interviews and hiring. Um, so they really casted a wide net of like 12 GM candidates. And I think it was, I think the final number um, was nine first round interviews for head coaches. So now we have three main coaches coming in, which is Jim Caldwell, um, Dan Quinn, and... Who is the third Flo- one? Flores? Yeah, Flores? Yeah. Well, Brian Flores has ties with Poles from his BC days. Um, but I think it was I think it was one other. I can't really remember right now. All defensive. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, it sounds about right. Well, so now we'll flip to the, the offense. Lots of scoring huh. uh, on Sunday night in Kansas City. There's no doubt in my mind that's Landon's pick. But I could be wrong. We'll no, see. Yeah, that, that is. So that, <laughs> that was probably, like, easily one of the greatest football games I've ever watched in my life. Um it's funny because growing up, these are, like, exactly the type of games that the Chiefs would find a way to lose. One of the most horrifying memories in lo- just locked into my brain is some is a very famous comeback that goes untalked about in the scale of national football lore is um, the Chiefs blowing a 38-10 lead um, against Indianapolis and eventually not being able to come back and losing 45-44 something like that to to Andrew Luck and friends. Mm. That was very painful for me. That was the only other high-scoring Chiefs shootout playoff game that comes to mind off the jump, but holy crap. I mean, an incredible weekend of football was capped off by an incredible game. Yep. The thing I'll say is that the secondary issues really started to rear its ugly head, and if the Chiefs' secondary is not at 100% come Sunday, I'm kind of worried about how they're going to hold up against Burrow, Chase, Higgins, and friends. Um, but for right now, I'm I'm still reveling in the joy that is that. I mean, I don't even know where to start because it was just so incredible. Like, I mean, I, I guess the 13 seconds thing. Right. I have... <laughs> For I mean, going prevent has its pros and cons, but it most 
often always does a little bit more harm than good in the sense that you're just allowing people to pick up chunks. The first play the Chiefs ran on that drive was immediately familiar to me because the Chiefs ran it in 2016 in Dallas to get a, a, hail, a kind of weird Hail Mary touchdown. It was really funny. Uh, it was basically Alex Smith ran a little 10-yard seam ball of Tyreek, two lead blockers, and he just ran around and scored. But that was kind of the first play. And then I'm sure by now most of you guys have seen the video where Mahomes and Kelsey basically just called an audible for mm-hmm. him to cut in and go up the seam. I've never really any seen anything like that in my entire life before. The fact that that was so engineered, so well thought out, um, and the fact that it saved another that would have been just so devastating. I think, right? Um, especially because I love Andy Reid, but there were a lot of questionable coaching decisions Andy Reid made, namely the uh, Blake Bell option pitch yes. on third and one yeah. to turn a potential touchdown into three points. Um, the secondary couldn't stop Josh Allen. Josh Allen's incredible. I hope that there are many more Mahomes-Josh Allen playoff battles in the future because both are remarkable. The Bills are still really good. I feel worse for Bills fans because I've heard it all week. Like, this was the team that the Bills thought were going to do the thing and unseat Mahomes and make the make their way to a Super Bowl and whatnot. And I do really I, – I am of the belief that – the Bills and the Chiefs are the two best teams in football remaining, um, and I'm glad that, that game was able to showcase that. But I'm just pumped. Like, I want to go. I was really, really, ne- I was low on the Chiefs entering the postseason. I was. Right. I was disappointed after the loss to the Bengals. I was like, okay, like maybe we're going to come back to earth a little bit. You have to go through and win three games to get to the Super Bowl, which Mahomes has never done. We, the Chiefs, had always just been a bye, win two games. I like that much better. It's much easier on my heart rate. <laughs> um, but now, I mean, you look at it, and we're one win away from this thing, and this is the fourth ASC championship in a row the Chiefs have hosted. It's incredible, and, you know, you <laughs> tell, like, 10- or 12-year-old me that I would have I, – I don't even know what I would have said because, right. I mean, the Chiefs of my lifetime are like the Jaguars are now. They're the bags over the heads, half-empty stadiums, constant hiring and firing and coaching changes and stuff. And to be, like, in this position now, just to be able to, like, not even be worried when there's 13 seconds left in a game and your season could end, it's mm. just insane. I, th- I think that wraps up about all of my thoughts. No, I mean... Um, I'm still worried about the Bengals, though. Yeah. I, I, I don't really want to be dismissive of them because they're hot, but I will say, uh, man, <laughs> bro... I think Burrow might – I mean, if that offensive line performs like they do again, I think it could be a really long night for Burrow Should the, as long as the Chiefs execute because I don't think Mahomes is going to give them the same opportunities that Ryan Tannehill did. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true. The red, the red flag for me is obviously the secondary. You touched on that. I, I think as I look at that game, I don't know if I'm rooting more for Zach Taylor or against Jackson Mahomes. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> – I don't really know which one it is for me. As my um, with with that family kind of signing my checks a little bit for my internship. No comment. No comment. Yeah, no well, comment. There you go. Yeah. But uh, yeah, conflict I, of interest. I just it's an off-air conversation. <sighs> yeah, I, I I'm gonna go with more rooting for Zach Taylor. If 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 it was a Bengals Rams Super Bowl, I would be. I would be pretty happy just because it's very hard for me to root against either one of those quarterbacks or teams. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. It's yeah. it's gonna be another good weekend. I'm so. really quick. I'm I'm rooting on the Rams. Yeah. Not not just because I have money on the Rams to win the NFC, but I I, I do think <laughs> that 
The Niners scare me a lot. I mean, I've already been down that road. That yeah. Super Bowl was just terrible. The Niners are a great matchup when their defensive guys are healthy with the way that they're able to that rush run the is incredible. The Chiefs are a little bit better on the offensive line than they were that go around, but hoof. Plus, I mean, God, it would be great to see Stafford. I mean, this is already like a, an incredible playoff run that he's on. It would be really cool to see him and McVay there. And then the Rams are, of course, no easy feat either because that talk about incredible defensive fronts that are going to be going at it. That game is going to be great on, on, on Sunday. That's the night game. And it'll be cool to see whether or not McVay can finally, finally get the best of his old buddy Kyle Shanahan because he's like, what, 0-6? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so weird for a divisional like divisional right. opponents to just not. But anyways, that it's going to be another, hopefully, another two really good games setting up for a good Super Bowl. I, if the Chiefs don't make it, I'll be pretty bummed, but I am, <clears throat> there aren't like any super unlikable teams. So it's going to be a really exciting weekend of football. Well, just from, a little yeah, tidbit I will say about the Rams, other than Stafford, which I agree with you, I would love to see him win a Super Bowl. And obviously that superstar defense with Aaron Donald, Von Miller, and Jalen Ramsey. I, uh, I'll just throw in a little name drop that I did go to high school with um, the center for the Rams oh, okay. um, and his three brothers, uh, Brian Allen, so like represent Hinsdale Central Red Devils. But, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> God. Well, I, I think for me, uh, my number one was my trip down to Lawrence, Kansas uh, on Monday. And first off, getting back at 3.30 in the morning was not part of like, the good part of the trip. Uh, that is for sure. I don't know what you're doing with those stupid Kansas turnpikes, Landon, but we got oh, stuck yeah. at one until from like at like one in the morning for felt like a half hour. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're, they're brutal. Yeah, so that wasn't great. But I can tell you, the atmosphere in Fog Allen for that matchup between Texas Tech and Kansas on Monday night was one of the best I think I've ever been a part of. Uh, it was something else. And then to give to have the game go into double overtime, um, you know, to get to see a Big Twelve battle like that. That was something that was really, really special. So I, I enjoyed the heck out of that, and um, so that that was a big part uh, of my last week. So there we go. There's the best thing that we saw this week. Now time to move in, into some business uh, here. We'll start with Husker women's hoops. Of course, that's the beat that Scotty covers for the Daily Nebraskan. And, you know, we'll start here, Scotty. I, I think as both teams right now, both the men's team and the women's team, are currently on a COVID pause. Mm-hmm. Uh we look at it as it, is, is it came at a bad time for the men's team. I think I could argue in some ways, and of course, nobody is you know rooting for anyone to get COVID. That's not what we're saying at all. But the pause, if it had to come at a time for this women's team, now probably was not a bad time after a really tough stretch of games. And now you get a chance to regather and move into an easier part of your schedule. Is that how you see it? Is that is that how you think that's the vibe that's coming off this team right now that they're rested and they're healthy coming into this next part of the year? Yeah, to talk about your note of resting, I mean, having Bella Cravens get some more time to rest her ankle and Sam Hybee with her shoulder and obviously to get um, an offensive weapon in Jazz Shelley um, rested and given some more time to uh, get back on the floor. The word rested is really key with all of this. Uh, I think it will come at it came at a really good time because of that big win against um, number eight Michigan at the time, and then to have the stretch of Iowa twice and then um, number six Indiana. The team is exhausted, um, but I mean they played resilient. Um, this rest is really key though for 
them to finish off the season very strong against not a an easier schedule, but kind of more games that um, they'll be able to handle. I was going to say, quick, Scotty, too. I mean, I think the most important part of that returning from the pause is the opponents coming up next. I mean, Wisconsin is third from last of the Big Ten. Purdue is a bottom half Big Ten team. Rutgers is in last place in the Big Ten, 0-8 in conference. Even, you know, Penn State's right there below Purdue. So, I mean, it's something to be said that, you know, they can say that COVID pauses are either right time or wrong time. Like, doesn't the fact that, you know, the schedule's a little bit lighter here for allowing Nebraska, for lack of a better word, to ease back into things, I mean, that, that's got to be a benefit, right? Oh, of course. And, I mean, any time that they can rest up, handle anything um, that they need to with um, their play of just holes that they need to get better at, which Coach Amy Williams is amazing at, turning around and practicing and getting um, better at those types of things um, that they need to work on. And then also just to kind of have games that will boost their confidence after the break, after this tough three-game skid is uh, is definitely a positive for the women's team. I, I think as you look at that that four-game stretch they just played after the Michigan State game, they, they get that win over Michigan 79-58, then you lose three in a row, Iowa twice, and on the road in Indiana – when, when I had talked with Matt Coatney, the, the voice of uh, Husker Women's Hoops, a little bit earlier in the year before that stretch, he had said, that's an Elite Eight, Sweet 16 level stretch they're going to be playing right there. And he thought, hey, if they went 2-2, two and two, he would be happy. Now, they didn't quite make that uh, a reality, but as you look at those games, you look at the first Iowa game, well, Iowa shot just about 60%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the second Iowa game, there's a huge disparity in, in, in free throws. You look at the Indiana game, they're right there. They didn't have Sam Hybe late. Uh, for that one. So you look at those three games, you can say, hey, they were right there in all of these games and were very capable of winning all of them despite not getting any breaks. Then you look down at the last part of the schedule and you get Maryland, Ohio State, and Indiana all in a row, all currently ranked, two of those three on the road. Do you think that stretch fares better than their most recent stretch? And, And what do you think that they learned from that, again, earlier stretch in the year of ranked teams that they can apply later? Yeah, so just to touch on that first four-game stretch, I mean, all of those teams have their players that are going to handle the game and take over the game. And with Iowa and Caitlin Clark, I mean, that's that's some of the best basketball individually that I've seen played this year is Caitlin Clark. And her games against Nebraska, um, both over 30 points, just at Nebraska, or against Nebraska, not even counting her other stats coming into that game or the games um, showed really a weakness in the Husker defense that they don't have that kind of isolation defender to really take on Caitlin Clark. And so I think what they need to rally around for their next big stretch against the teams that you named is just finding their identity back on defense. I mean, at the beginning of the year, they were I think it was top 50 in defensive categories, and now they're just just inside the top 150 um, in scoring defense. Um, I mean, they're still number 50 in field goal percentage um, in Division One. So I mean, they have they have a really strong defense. They just need to apply it in those stronger opponents that they have. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about that for sure. There's always going to be a little bit of adjustment period from the non-con to actual Big Ten. I mean, you look back at the beginning of Nebraska's schedule, I mean, they they didn't even allow a team to get to score over 65 points against them until December. Like, that's just absolutely absurd. And there's always going to be a little bit of a grace period, especially when you're going against some of the, the better players in, in women's college basketball, like, like a Caitlin Clark. But... I mean, you also have to consider that a lot of those situations, like, not not everyone's going to have a Caitlin Clark, yeah. right? Like, she's a very, very rare talent, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely would second that that on that sort of primary on-ball defender is not necessarily a necessity, but it's a, something that, that's nice to have. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think as, as you look at this team this year, one of the things that's really jumped out to me is the depth. You've got three really solid post players, Markowski, Bourne, Cravens, uh, the guards—they were deep last year. They're, I think, even deeper this year. How how is that fair? Do you think? And and is that probably one of the better strengths of this team, or do you think there's maybe something else? Oh, definitely. I think the depth is something that they relied on, like Landon touched on with the non-conference games in the beginning of the season. Was um, Amy Williams talked about how they were getting double-digit um, minutes for the majority of the team through those times to get um, that keyword and experience for those um, depth players. And I mean, like you said, guard is something that they're very deep in. I mean, you have those um, starting guards in Jay Shelley and Ashley Scoggin. And then you have Sam Hybe mostly playing small forward just to get her in that starting lineup because she's such a key for the Nebraska team. But then you have fresh freshman um, Allison Widener, who when she's not that much of a threat from beyond the three-point line, but when you talk about like a slashing 2K point guard, um, that's what comes to mind when um And she's really I great on the Widener. defensive end, too. Yeah, exactly. She's got that hustle and grit um, that really gives the guards a lot of depth. And then, like you said, um, from the forwards, I mean, uh, I'm assuming we're going to talk about more right. in depth in uh, Alexis Markowski, but, I mean, coming in as a freshman – um, she has given Bella Cravens and Izzy Bourne um, kind of a weight off of their shoulders to really play their type of game and, um, and let them do what their strengths are. And I think that that really showed um, with Bella Cravens' play before she got injured. Sadly, she's missed the past four games. But Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Alexis Markowski here. She's won uh, Big Ten Freshman of the Week, I believe, four times now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you look at the game against Iowa, and we've talked a lot about here today about the individual performances of Caitlin Clark, but Alexis Markowski's performance rivaled that in many ways. 27 points for her. Uh, 10 of 12 shooting, and she was deadly uh, from three-point range going 6 of 7 there. Yeah. Uh, some I think some on Twitter, along with, I think, um, yeah, I think it wasn't, I don't think it was just Jacob Padilla with Hale Varsity that was doing it, but calling her Alexis Markhouse 3 yeah. <laughs> uh, in there instead. Uh, but 27 points for her. She's really, really come on in the last couple of weeks with dealing with, as the team's dealt with some of those injuries, uh, to the point where, as she's surpassed Bourne and Cravens in some ways, um, I don't know. I don't know if she'll come off, you know, be something besides coming off the bench this year. But she's a huge weapon in that area, and she's done a good job filling in. Yeah, I mean, honestly, just to touch on her three-point shooting um, in those first couple of games, she didn't really showcase that. I mean, she is a forward and. 
Um, she plays that way, and it really – it was cool to see those first couple of games when she started shooting the three-point um, shot that she has. And then um, the last Iowa game was ridiculous, and I was listening um, in, a, in accordance with watching um, – on my laptop, I was listening to Matt Courtney, um, and the way that he was broadcasting her shots just were um, another cherry on top of watching the experience. Right. Because, I mean, the confidence that she has in that shot, not a lot of people as a freshman or even as um, a more powerful player that she has um, in her skill set um, showing that confidence from beyond the three-point line is something that really has sparked this team. And, I mean, you see it from the bench um, with Whitney Brown doing the bicycle and all of those celebrations mm. that the team just loves it when she shoots from beyond um, the arc. And it's been something special. And, I mean, obviously she's 10 of 14 on the season, but that's a 71% from outside from three-point. Right. And so, I mean, that's – that's got to give her a ton of confidence, especially in these past, um, I think it was, well, she's stepped in for Cravens in the starting lineup, but let me just make sure I'm getting the number correct. Yeah, I mean, so in all four games that she has um, started, I'm pretty sure she's topped her career high in, in points um, <laughs> in all of those games. Now she's second, averaging 11.2, um, right behind Jazz Shelley, who's averaging 13.8. So, I mean, she's really stepped into her own and found a role in this offense that uh, the team, I don't think, necessarily expected, especially from um, that longer range. Yeah. I'm curious, too, going back to that that death point, obviously we see like players like Markowski really coming on in, in recent weeks. As we get closer to crunch time and, you know, later in the season, that stretch, Big Ten tournament, potentially, you know, an NCAA tournament appearance, I'm curious whether or not you see Amy Williams continuing to go and roll like 10, 11 players deep. It's not uncommon, you know, in a comparison to on the men's side, we've seen really successful Florida State teams under Leonard Hamilton, yep. you know, roll deep into NCAA tournaments with a 10, 11 player rotation. So it's not uncommon. It's pretty, I don't know, it's not super, super uncommon. But, I mean, to have a lot of sustained success that can be tricky in terms of balancing, you know, players' emotions, some people frustrated with lacks of playing time and things. So I'm curious as to whether or not you think that, you know, Amy Williams is going to roll with it as we get down the stretch or if there's going to be a rotation of, like, eight, seven players emerge from that pack. Yeah, so, I mean, depth is definitely something that I think the team is going to roll with, but especially with what I think they are doing, which is just kind of riding that hot hand of like who's playing well who like you said can handle the emotions of those big games um because once that depth of like sophomores and freshmen that haven't played um those bigger games those games that really count towards something at the end of the year um I think it's going to really fall on the shoulders of like Sam Hybe and um even though Jay Shelley is a sophomore I mean she did come from that Oregon team that was outstanding so she has that experience um and obviously getting another junior in Bella Cravens back for that ending stretch I think will be key so I think as much as they do ride on their depth I think it will be that rotation of who can handle those bigger moments 
and um, handle those bigger games once it comes down to it. Because, I mean, you see it, you saw it in the Indiana game. Um, it was really those top players that played m the majority of the minutes um, and those lower down depth players who um, necessarily couldn't help the team at that time. Um, didn't see as much action as they saw throughout the average of the season. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I that's that's spot on. I think I, 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 the good thing to do there is roll with the experience, which Nebraska is fortunate to have a lot of it, a lot of key positions. Well, big games coming up for Nebraska uh, as this one will be released on Friday. The Wisconsin game will be in the books. Uh, Nebraska uh, should be favored uh, in that one. Uh, and then you look at Purdue coming up on Sunday, Rutgers on Feb 1. I believe that one is the makeup game. Yeah, if I remember that is correctly. the makeup game. A little four game homestand. I didn't even realize yeah. that. Yes, yes. And I, let's see, are you on the, which one are you on, Scott? Are you on the Purdue game or Wisconsin this week? So I'm on Wisconsin. And then, and then yeah, I'm not, I'm not at a game until Penn State. So sadly. there you go. Yeah, so four game homestand coming up. For uh, Husker Women's Hoops, Wisconsin, Purdue, Rutgers, and Penn State. Uh, Nebraska currently in ESPN's Women's uh, College Basketball Bracketology, a projected seven seed headed to the Tucson uh, site to open the year against Boston College. Of course, that will change uh, as, excuse me, as time goes on. Big thanks to Scotty for joining us. Now time to move on. We'll discuss men's basketball coming up next. They got Wisconsin on Thursday as well, and they'll follow that one up with a big week ahead to come. All right, welcome back. Scarlet Fever, time to talk some men's hoops. Big thank to, big thank you. Uh, to Scotty Spinazzola for joining us earlier. Yes, uh, great conversation with Scotty. Always enjoy having um, writer beat writers on. They're doing great, fantastic work covering the team, working hard. Scotty's Twitter is at Scott Spinazzola. That is S-C-O-T-T-S-P-I-N-A-Z-O-L-A. That is Scott Spinazzola. He's doing great work on his um, first season covering the women's basketball beat, so make sure to give him a follow on Twitter. Well, uh, time to move into some men's hoops discussion. And, you know, there's a number of really big stories going into this game on <laughs> Thursday. Um, God. For Nebraska, there's it's all, always drama. I, I mean, seemingly. Uh, for, for Nebraska, it's it's a COVID thing. It's coming back from the COVID pause. And per Robin Washington, as we record this on uh, Wednesday morning, every player for Nebraska who tested positive for COVID is going to be wearing a mask uh, during the game on the bench. Uh, of course, normally players are free to not wear masks uh, while playing. That won't be the case on uh, Thursday afternoon. And then when you look at the Nebraska side, or rather on the Wisconsin side, things are um, obviously very, very heavy this week. There's a lot going on uh, for Wisconsin emotionally. Of course, it's the return for uh, former Omaha star basketball player Chucky Hepburn. And on uh, earlier this week, I believe it was Sunday or Monday, um, Chucky lost a longtime friend um, who passed away suddenly, so he's dealing with that currently. And then, of course, Wisconsin's head coach, Greg Gard, his mother uh, was recently, and it was recently announced that she uh, was diagnosed 
with cancer. So the team is going to be wearing pink laces. Guard will be wearing pink shoes uh, as a part of Coaches versus Cancer Week. So there's a lot of really heavy stuff going on uh, on the Wisconsin side. And, of course, thoughts and prayers are with uh, Hepburn and his family and, of course, uh, Greg Guard and his family as well. Yeah, um, definitely want to echo those sentiments. It's going to be very, very um, difficult, I would imagine, for, for the team. I mean, you've seen it in recent weeks with, with Kansas kind of rallying behind Bill Self uh, following the loss of his father. So definitely very, very heavy, serious stuff. Always a, a nice but sobering reminder that there's a lot more to this little silly, you know, thing that we do. It's life. Uh, real life issues so um, definitely want to echo those sentiments as for the first issue um, perhaps the most pressing is going to be the COVID pause and how Nebraska is going to be able to respond from this um, you know COVID pauses are never usually um, you know we talk about the women's it might come at a good time for Nebraska it's kind of just comes at an eh time. I mean, Nebraska wasn't really necessarily, at least for me, on the precipice of turning this monumental corner in its play, but it also wasn't, you know, in this poor run of form either. It was kind of just stuck in this little right. state of, <laughs> of purgatory. A of little meh. Bit. Uh, exactly, of meh. Um, I don't really know. Uh, the mask thing is going to be super interesting. Uh, it's something that has not really happened very much. I mean, throughout this whole pandemic, I mean, my memories are as follows. You saw in the Patriot League last year with some teams like Holy Cross, Boston, Colgate, all the schools up there, there were some instances where masks were worn during game. I have a memory of the first Nebraska game from last year where a player mm. from McNeese State wore a mask. That's kind of it. So it's going to be a really, really weird scene. I mean, you see it a lot in, like, high school and stuff, but it, it very rarely has it happened in, like, a D1 Power 6 game. So that's going to be kind and, of a, and, a weird sight. And mostly because of HIPAA, we don't know, you know, who's tested positive. It's it's going to be pretty obvious. I was going to say, you're going to know on Thursday. I know. Uh, it's going to be pretty apparent. So that's just going to be weird. That, like, that's a weird conflict in and of itself there. Uh, but of course, that's the new that's you know that's the new CDC guidelines. You get out five days before, you got to wear a mask, and so um, that that's going to be a very interesting uh, dynamic change. But I, I think as as a as a whole, the team would much rather be playing with masks on uh, than off for a month and basically playing back to back to back nights like they did last year. Yeah, uh, you're you're not wrong. Um, one of the stories within that that obviously is the most interesting is the return of Trey McGowan. So, mm. of course, Trey plays his first game against Indiana. Obviously, you know, kind of rusty offensively. Defensively, I'd say more so. It kind of looked like he didn't miss a beat for stretches, which was nice. Um, but now it kind of further uh, pollutes his, you know, what his minute workload is going to look like. Um, you know, Fred Hoiberg is currently speaking with Nebraska media right now. He said that last week was supposed to help um, Trey McGowan's regain stamina and timing, um, you know, per a good week of practice. Like he likes to talk about the COVID pause, per Hoiberg changed that to be determined what the plan is going forward. Um, in a non-COVID altered world, this is probably a game in which Trey McGowan, McGowan's makes his return to the starting lineup, one would think, um, after, you know, maybe coming off the bench again for Ohio State. I would imagine that the starting lineup would look something like Bryce and Trey and Derek and Lat and Verge, some combination of those five. Um, but now it, it further it further sullies things a little bit. So I think that, for me, is going to be one of the, like, obviously the um, thing to watch. 
There's also another thing, um, storyline number two that yeah. is coming out of this because, in addition to you know the on-court stuff, Nebraska is now starting to deal with a little bit of off-court stuff, which it sucks to say, but it happens when you know teams are performing like this and just continually finding ways to come up short. It gets frustrating for a little, you know, after a while, and then things start to you know. Uh, further get, you know, into the the world of drama. Yeah, I this whole Kobe Webster thing, uh, it's it's something else. It's a story. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the ticket does a lot of the these kind of like individual player interviews. I, I feel like the ticket does more of these than really um, any other station in Lincoln. It feels I'd say like so. they have a pretty good, you know, for better or worse, they have a pretty good relationship with a lot of student-athletes. They are pretty frequently getting guests. And and so in some ways, uh, I'm a little bit surprised, actually, um, that what we're, see- what we're seeing right now um, hasn't happened in some other sport earlier. Yeah. Uh, I, I am a little bit surprised. But, you know, either way, what, what was said... It's still very interesting to me. Yeah. Um. And the, and then of course everything that followed that. So, the, I, it's so interesting how that played, especially in the COVID pause. Um. You know, there's a quote you talked about uh, before we started recording this, where Nebraska has been uh, quote unquote looking and looked itself in the mirror over the break. Uh, but we've had these, you know, come to Jesus moments before already once this year. Uh, I believe following the Auburn game, yeah. uh, there was this, hey, we're going to try to look and we're going to try to put different things in before K-State. Really quickly, isn't it funny that Auburn's like now the number one team in college I know. basketball and they just absolutely blew Nebraska off the floor? Who would have thought? Anyways, sorry. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, 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 a weird, it's a weird thing. And I don't know if we've seen something like that before. There's a lot, of, like, I think, and there's a lot of ways you can say that, too, without calling out specific people. Like, you know, if, if he said... Um, we all just need to be more accountable and didn't name any names, so to speak. And he technically he didn't name any names. He just said, I believe the coaching staff, if I remember correctly. Yeah. If he just said, we all as a team need to be more accountable, it's a non-story. Um, and, and possibly even a positive spin on it, right? Like, oh, they're trying to be more accountable. Instead, it was there was blame placed, and, of course, that caused the controversy. Yeah, the full quote um, from the interview is, he always talks about player-led teams, how can you expect another player to hold his teammate accountable if the coaches don't hold them accountable? For me, my first takeaway would be more concern because it's not like, you know, a freshman or someone that hasn't been around the program long is saying something like this. Kobe has been around the block at a couple of different college basketball programs, right. and this is his second year at Nebraska. And... To me, it it really is kind of an issue that this is starting to pop up. Um, it worries me, and you know, play uh, having an organizational structure in which um, players are holding themselves accountable can go one of two ways most of the time. I mean, look at the end of the day, these are kids that are our peers. They're they're college students, eighteen right. to twenty two, twenty three year olds. They all are going to have their, you know, their own things they want. They're all independent. It's it's hard to corral a bunch of those guys, and so people like like Derek Walker and Kobe Webster are important, 
But for that to work, for a player-led culture to work, you have to have more of those guys that are mature enough to be able to call people out. I mean, we hear these stories, um, you know, post-game and things all the time about how Derek Walker is one of those guys that is frequently holding people accountable, whether it's on the court, in practice, during games, on the bench. Um, and it's why he's one of the team's most important players on the season. But in order to have a player-led culture of accountability, Derek Walker cannot be the only person that's instilling that. Yep. Because, I mean, you know, I've grown up playing sports on my life. When you have just one person that's that's like that, it kind of just like, oh, this guy, like, I don't know. I don't want him getting on me all the time or whatever. I mean, you have to have more people that are like that in place in order for something like that to work. So it really kind of bums me out that some of this quote-unquote quiet stuff is being said out loud here and the fact that, you know, it had to come to this externally. It doesn't help that now there's start a lot of rumors and, you know, mumbling starting to swirl about Fred Hoiberg's job security as Nebraska seems doomed um, for another really, really poor season within the Big Ten. Um, things like this coming out, like, definitely do not help at all. Right. In fact, they're red flags that are raised. Um, so the timing of the story and it all coming out was weird, but to me it's – definitely a concern so there you go there's some controversy uh, again you know we've had plenty of that uh in the past and uh, that does not uh, stop this week so that for the most part is behind the team but what yeah. is ahead you can still seem see some of those rippling conflicts uh and consequences uh of that so uh, i think technically that did happen like last week after we recorded, we just didn't touch on it, and they, they talked a little bit more about it today, today's media availability. So um, we decided to go into it a little bit further, especially considering they got a game coming up, and this is the first time we're going to be seeing this team on the floor since those comments. Yeah. Um, wow. Robin Washett's tweet about the, the mask mm. usage is just getting uh, lots of conversation on Twitter. Uh, the addendum to that is it's a, it's Lancaster County policy. Right. Um, <sighs> Boy, uh, yeah. So what's ahead? There are things. There's still a season, right? Woohoo! Um, get excited. Uh, after Wisconsin on Thursday, which will be a, a very, very tall task. Um, I mean, things look bleak. Nebraska is not projected to win another game per Ken Palm. Um, and Lord, if if the Big Ten record truly is 0 and, and 19, uh, they're Man, there will need to be some more serious conversations have than what are currently being had. But the good news is, positive spin here. It's Positivity Wednesday. There's opportunity. Um, maybe Wisconsin aside, Rutgers is a team um, that's pretty inconsistent, uh, especially away from home. Northwestern coming to PBA is a winnable game, as is Minnesota. Maryland is a team that might be trying, to, might be inching towards finding its form, but that's a team that Nebraska is. There's opportunity, and and even going to Penn State. So, it's you know as negative and as bad as the past week or so has been. There's opportunity to at least get some semblance of a positive season out of this. If Nebraska, over its last 11 games, can find three or four Big Ten wins, I would consider, you know, what this team is going through now and, you know, how they've battled back to be a semi-success, I think. Three or four wins would be great. Anything less than three would be just pretty damning on, you know, the overall 
I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But there's plenty of opportunities there down the stretch to make something out of nothing. But yeah, boy, that tweet of, of, of Robbins is getting a lot of people talking. So there will be masks. There will on be masks. Thursday, uh, 4 o'clock afternoon start against Wisconsin. As you listen to this, that game will be in the books. Uh, and then, of course, a uh, game on Saturday against Rutgers. And I would guess could still see some masks in play then as yeah. well. So next up, we're going to get into the Big Ten rankings, take a look at college basketball, the landscape in the conference, and we'll break all that down. All right, folks, welcome back to Scarlet Fever. Time to wrap up the show as we have, uh, or at least we will, uh, in the coming weeks with a overview of the Big Ten men's hoops ranking. So we break this down. This comes out every Thursday. We record this on Wednesday. So you guys do not have this out yet. You'll have it. Actually, this is a whole mess because we record this on Wednesday. You, This comes out on Thursday, and everyone will be listening to this if you listen immediately on Friday. So um, weird kind of timeline, but Still, we're going to sit here and we're going to break down these rankings. Uh, there's been a lot that's happened uh, in the Big Ten this week, and I, th- I think one of the biggest points that I was trying to make, I think, in writing this is there's a lot going on, I think, in terms of conference discussion in college basketball right now. A lot of Big 12 uh, talk recently, and, and rightfully so. Um, but I think at least over the last week, the Big Ten has been almost equally cannibalistic. I mean, it is it is up and down. It is so hard to rank some of these teams because so many of these teams have beaten each other at different times. And, you know, for example, I think I make the point later uh, in the bottom half of the, of the rankings where you have Rutgers, Minnesota, Iowa, and Maryland, and they've all beaten each other and lost to different, <laughs> different ones of that four group in the last week. Um, so it, it's, it's a really, really interesting conference, especially right now, because again, those teams in that bottom half, the Rutgers, the Iowa, uh, they could still make a run into the top half of the standings. And granted, they probably don't have what it takes to compete with the top half, the Wisconsin, Illinois, Purdue, Ohio State, but they certainly have what it takes to upset them on any given night. And that could make the Big Ten tournament pretty interesting once we get down to those brass tacks in about a month. Yeah. I mean... I still do, and give a slight edge to the Big 12, maybe that's homerism. Uh, but the Big 10, I will say, has proven to be just as equally consistently deep. You bring the good point about that middle, I, I don't have your rankings quite in front of me, but probably that 7 through 11 range or 8 through 11, because those teams, and it might be what gives a little bit of hope to Nebraska down the stretch here, um, but some of those teams are just so wildly inconsistent on a right. night-to-night basis. You have Rutgers, who proves to be this kind of unstoppable force at home, I guess sands last night now, because then they go and turn around and lose at home to Maryland. But Rutgers is such a good home team and so so spotty away from home. Then you have Iowa, who really, really fluctuates on a night-to-night basis. Maryland, who, as a team that everyone kind of thought was just dead on arrival after all of the tumultuous non-conference and, you know, Mark Turgeon being fired and all of that. And maybe that's a team that we're almost undervaluing now as they start to come into form. Fats Russell has been one of my favorite players in college basketball, and I was kind of disappointed at, you know, how Maryland had started out given his presence. 
but maybe that's a team that's rounding back into form a little bit. And then Minnesota is just this super ultra enigma that started out really hot, and it kind of looked like Minnesota and Iowa State were going to be these grand surprises of college basketball. But Minnesota's now cooled off a little bit. So there's a lot of wild inconsistency that, yes, um, <laughs> it really makes it hard to differentiate. But, I mean, if I'm a top team with the Big Ten, like, you know, this will come out after Purdue plays Iowa on Thursday night and Ohio State goes to Minnesota. Like, right. that certainly doesn't sound fun. Like, yeah, it's, I harder wanna... to do, it's almost harder to do this, and it certainly is in the football ones, because everything, you have all the data points in each week. Yeah. And so you're still missing some from time to time. Yeah, it, it makes it good and bad. But, I mean, Ohio State's trip to the barn is not going to be fun on Thursday right. night, nor will Purdue's trip to Carver-Hawkeye. I mean, those are two teams, and... You know, everyone in that middle pack can say this. Like, they are starving for big wins to make a potential NCAA tournament push. It's it's almost kind of a given that the Big Ten will at least get eight or nine teams in. But, you know, how that flushes out and materializes is going to be super fascinating because there are lots of deserving teams, but you got to pick up these huge, huge wins when the situation calls for it. Um, so this week is going and, and weekend is going to be massive for um, a lot of the teams in the Big Ten. Most recent update on bracketology comes uh, from Joe Lenardi at ESPN at 7 a.m. on Tuesday, the 25th. Uh, Big Ten has seven teams. Big 12 has eight. So Iowa in there, they're eighth in the rankings. Excuse me, this week they're projected a seven seed. That is the last team uh, in as it currently sits. And even Penn State, you know, I made this point too. Penn State cracked the top 10 a week ago for me at number nine I dropped them to number 13 this week and it's really through no fault of their own they just don't have some of the big wins uh, that some of these other teams have had in the last week yeah and and speaking of opportunity as we record this on Wednesday Penn State has a massive one at Indiana tonight um but yeah I mean with with Penn State it's really one of those things where anything is really a success at this point because after talk about another th- team that's gone through a ton of adversity, I kind of assumed Penn State was just going to be terrible because you lose your coach, you lose pretty much all of your key contributors from last year, sans like John Harar. Um, and the fact that they've been able to compete and, and win these Big Ten games and give other teams like Purdue really down-to-the-wire scares at home, I mean, it, it says a lot. And, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it is a bummer. But it's kind of just the nature of the beast a little bit in the Big Ten. Like, it, it's really admirable that Penn State has been able to compete and battle um, the way that it has. Uh, and, yeah, I'd agree with your assessment. It really is through no faults of their own. It's like, you know, sometimes you're just going to get eaten alive by the wolves a little bit in a really, really scary and good Big Ten. But at least you can say that the Nittany Lions are battling on a night-in-night-out basis and ripping off some of these games. And well, then the other thing, too, is we look at the last, my last little point in the bottom half of these rankings. Uh, Rutgers at number seven. I, I make the point in here, I, I think Rutgers is really underperforming. You have that weird loss to Minnesota where the Gophers are down three starters and they lose 68-65. <laughs> then you lose at home, as they did on Tuesday, to Maryland. I mean, there's some really weird things going on with this team. They should be a lot better than 11-8. Yeah, the advanced numbers do not like Rutgers very much. Um, that's just kind of the way Steve Pikel kind of wants it, though. Like, Rutgers is a team that's going to defy a lot of conventional logic. They're going to muck games up, and, you know, that's kind of their path to success. I will agree that especially offensively, things have not just not been good or consistent. The fact that Rutgers is the 170th most efficient offense per Ken Palm um, is not great and contributes a lot to the fact that they're 96th per Ken Palm, 107th on Bart Torvik, so not a team that should be scratching the NCAA tournament by purely advanced numbers. 
Um, but you take a look at him, and I mean, you have to agree. I mean, you on the one hand, you have the win over Purdue, the win over Michigan, the win over Iowa. All three are great, but you also have losses to Lafayette and then the Minnesota losses. Or DePaul. Or DePaul. I mean, pretty just poor. Um, So it's really hard to analyze them. And they've been a team in the past where you have to feel pretty good about Nebraska's chances when the two match up, at least away from home. Uh, Nebraska just destroyed Rutgers last season when the two matched up with a similar cast of characters. And... It's because it's such an inconsistent squad away from home. But that, I mean, now um, for them, especially after the loss to Maryland, that's going to be a team that comes into PBA on Saturday either really tense or really, really focused. Because now we're at the point of the season in college basketball where you're really trying to avoid, I mean, calling a spade a spade, losing to a team like Nebraska. Right. Um, so I think we are probably going to get, I mean, both of us will be there. We're probably going to get a desperate version of, of Steve Pykel's squad. Um, and that'll be interesting to see how Rutgers performs, essentially with its back against the wall, against a team that it has not had recent success against at PBA. Yeah, the uh, offense is really confusing. In some ways they score, uh, you know, they, they manage 49 points against the Nittany Lions at Penn State after scoring 90, I believe, against Nebraska. I think that loss was right after the Nebraska yeah. game, if I remember correctly. It's just really up and down. Talk about inconsistent. And then uh, Ohio State holds at number five. Uh, other than playing Ui Pui, they basically have not played uh, IUPUI last week. Of course, the Nebraska game gets postponed due to COVID-19. Uh, so they get Minnesota this week. That has an upset feel. Uh, and then the, the tough decision for me at the top of this list was do I go with Michigan State or Wisconsin at number one, even apart from last night's loss, before last night's loss. And before last night's loss for uh, Michigan State, I was going to put them at number one in these rankings. And there was still a chance I felt like that Wisconsin could still be there considering what they were missing when they played Michigan State. But then after that loss to for Michigan State to Illinois, to a team that's down their best two players in Andre Carbello uh, and Kofi Cokeburn, it's really surprising. That loss was incredibly surprising to me. And then it says a lot about Illinois, too, at the same time. Michigan State drops from two to four. Uh, actually, they hold at number four. Uh, and then Wisconsin stays on top at one, Illinois three, and Purdue two. Yeah, I mean, talk about a, a beatdown. Michigan State smacked Wisconsin on Friday. That was not even... Uh, I mean, the final score is going to be a little bit more uh, glamorous to Wisconsin than how the game actually went. That was just super impressive from Tom Izzo's squad. Michigan State is good, which is why it made the loss at Illinois a little surprising. But then again, I mean, you think about this, winning winning on the road in the Big Ten is not easy. And, I mean, I guess Illinois proves to be a little bit more than just Coburn and Curbella. I mean, they've gone without Curbella for a while, so they've had other guys step up, like your your Trent Frazier's, your Alfonso Plummer's, uh, Grandison. So they've got guys. Uh, I mean, that was just a gritty team win. Really something I wasn't expecting, even though, you know, all that aside. But, I mean, you have to give credit to Illinois. It's going to be, it's going to serve them well if they can figure out ways to win these sorts of games without Coburn, because I'm sure there will come a time and place in some game that's much more important than a Tuesday night against Michigan State where they'll need to go without Coburn for long right. stretches. And, right. you know, that to me speaks pretty highly of what they've been able to accomplish because if you have a game like that last year for Illinois, 
I'm not really sure that they would have won or been super competitive. Of course, they had Io to lean back on as well, but, I mean, I just don't know if they win that sort of a game with Coburn not playing last year. So it really speaks volumes to them. Michigan State will be fine down mm-hmm. the road. I just think yep. it's kind of a little bit of a tough ask going to Wisconsin and then to Illinois um, in, in sort of consecutive fashion that's not really an easy feat. Uh, coming away with two wins would have been monumental, and you would have been absolutely bang on to put them at one because that's an insane two-game stretch with who teams had didn't have a side. Um, but, yeah, the, the Spartans are a team that I, I think will be fine. And, and talk about opportunities, we can finally look towards the weekend a little bit. Michigan State has a huge one, finally, um, against Michigan. Talk about a great opportunity there for, for both of those sides to get a potentially season turnaround win. If Michigan State does go on to lose said game against Michigan, the schedule's still pretty light with, with Maryland and Rutgers following. So not really too worried about the Spartans long term, uh, even if they go through a little mini two-game skid, they should be able to correct it out. But I will say, you don't want to be out of form as Michigan State gets towards mid-February with Illinois, Iowa, Purdue, mm. Ohio State yep. um, in a four-game stretch. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you know we're gonna we're gonna see a really cool February here. Uh, I, I still have some questions about Ohio State. Um, didn't get a whole lot of chances to see them in January because they dealt with COVID and some of the teams they played have dealt with COVID. Um, you look at Indiana, that could be a team that could make a push. Iowa could make a push. If Rutgers figures out, excuse me, some of their issues, they could put, make a push. Heck, Maryland. Maryland at this point, if they could somehow find a way to string stuff together, they could actually kind of make some hay down the stretch. That is even a that's a dark horse team, and then we didn't we didn't even talk about Michigan. Michigan, who's coming off two 20 point victories or nearly 20 point victories, I think they only beat Indiana by 18. But that team is a team that hey maybe maybe the Wolverines are starting to get their sea legs under them. And again, as I made a, a comparison in the piece to their uh, 19 uh, 20 campaign, uh, they won eight of 12 down the stretch uh, after starting I believe 11 and nine, and they're nine and seven now. So there's some similarities between those two years for Michigan. And so I, I think we're going to see a really, really interesting finish this thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. Gosh, I remember that that 1920 Michigan team. They didn't end up making the tournament, but, man, did they, they sort – of course, the tournament got canceled, but, man, right. did they sort things down the stretch. I'm going to circle now. I, I really want to see Maryland at, at PBA. That That's yep. one that I have circled that I'd like to cover just because I do think that – Maryland is a team that's really, really capable. And I think the thing that I really, really enjoy about Maryland is that experience in the backcourt and, and kind of around the, the, the whole court, but backcourt especially. Eric Ayala is a guy that has been around the block multiple times. Fats Russell's done it forever at, at Rhode Island and is starting to trans, transfer some of that over now production-wise. Dante Scott's been there. I mean, they just got guys that are experienced, and I think that'll ultimately serve them well down the stretch. So I... I think that Maryland's definitely a team with the potential to heat up and heat up very, very quickly. Well, that's going to do it for us here on Scarlet Fever. And we talked about a lot of hoops today. We tackled Nebraska women's basketball with uh, special guest Scotty Spinozola. Then we went into men's hoops uh, and broke down that, what that week is going to look like for Nebraska ahead. So lots of basketball. That's pretty typical of winter. Baseball coming up in about a couple of weeks here. So uh, we'll have that for you then, but it's going to be a basketball-heavy couple of weeks for you here 
uh, on Scarlet Fever. So again, don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at Landon Wirt, L-A-N-D-O-N-W-I-R-T, or at Hanson15 underscore Hanson. Again, that is H-A-N-S-E-N 15 underscore Hanson. 